Yeah, good morning, church. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Welcome to everybody, especially if you're a guest. If this is your first time to the church, welcome. Uh, welcome to everybody watching through the screen right now. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your apps, turn to Philippians chapter 3. That's going to be the text for today. We'll be in Philippians 3, this entire message. And if you've been following online for the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been in this series called Now What? Now what? With all that's going on in the world, with all the uncertainty and all the events going on, now what? Where do we go from here? What do we do as a church? What should we be thinking about and focusing on? And so today I want to share with you a principle that keeps popping up for me uh, lately a lot, in a lot of activities, a lot of sports, a lot of disciplines. The same principle keeps popping up, and I want to share that with you. So just a few weeks ago, I was mountain biking with a group of friends, and one of my friends, Johnny, told me that he heard there's this tip that when you go off of a jump, right, because sometimes there's jumps on the trail, he says, when you go off a jump, fix your eyes on where you want to land, and you'll land there. And that was mind-blowing because every time I try to jump, I'm, I'm looking at the ground beneath me, right? But I've always found myself falling short of where I wanted to land. And so I tried it. I fixed my eyes on where I wanted to go, and it was amazing. It actually works. You end up getting to where you fix your eyes. I told Johnny, I said, it's kind of like road biking, right? Road biking, you guys know, I, I've been taught as I got into the sport, it's a completely different sport, but... Kevin Noya, who comes to this church and rides with me, he says, when you go around these big curves, these turns, these switchbacks in, in Paul's Verdes, he says, don't fix your eyes on, on the ground in front of you. He says, look at the exit. Look at where you want to go, the, 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 the end of that turn. Otherwise, you'll overshoot the turn or undershoot the turn. Look at where you want to go. It's the same principle. I was uh, snowboarding with my family recently. We were snowboarding recently. And as I was going down the mountain, I, heard, I saw mom teaching her kid how to carve on a snowboard. And she kept repeating something that I remember always hearing when I first started snowboarding. She said to her kid, point and look to where you want to go and your body will follow. So if you want to go there, point there and your body's going to follow. You want to go there, point there and your body will get there. It's the same principle. So I started playing basketball recently. Now that I'm in my 40s, I've been playing more than I ever have my entire life. I didn't grow up playing a whole lot of basketball, but I'll admit, I can't shoot. <laughs> I'll admit it. And so I'm trying to get better and I'm trying to practice more. And I got some tips. And somebody told me, when you shoot the basketball, when you release it, don't just sit there and watch the ball. Don't just stare at the ball. They told me, just fix your eyes on the rim when you shoot and it'll get there. Mind blown, I've never tried that. So I tried it, and it doesn't work. Like, I still miss. I gotta practice more, I guess. But, but it's the same principle. Fix your eyes on the goal, and that's where you will go. Look ahead, and you'll get there. And it's a, a principle that I found true in Mountain biking and road biking, snowboarding and bowling. And there's one more area where I believe this principle is true. It's in running a race. Running a race. And the Bible uses an analogy of a race to compare to the Christian life. Paul uses this analogy many times. And in fact, Philippians chapter 3, our text for today, he uses this analogy once again. And so here's the text for today. We're in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 12 to 16. 
But here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing I do. Would you circle those two words, one thing? Here's what I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Amen. Would you guys join me in a word of prayer? And let's ask the Lord to really open our eyes to this truth. Father God, we pray that right now. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us understanding to what this scripture means and how it is meaningful in our life right now in this season and in the season to come. And God, I pray that as you open the eyes of our hearts, you would show us where to fix our eyes moving forward. Help us to know how to fix our focus. And I pray that when we see what we're supposed to see, we would look at it with laser focus. God, I pray for anybody right now who needs to hear this word, Lord, that, that you would help them to really draw near to you in this time, that they would be attentive to your spirit. I believe this is going to be a timely word for, for many people. And then there's some of us who aren't going through stuff right now. And I just pray that you would hide this word deep in our hearts so that when that season comes, we'd be reminded of your truth. So speak to us now. Hide it deep in our hearts. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul compares the Christian life to running a race. And that principle is what we're talking about today, to focus on what's your head. Fix your focus on the goal, and that's where you will go. And so I want to look a little bit closer at verses 13 and 14, and how is it that we practically fix our eyes on what's ahead of us? First thing he says is this. I'm going to give you three things that he says. The first is this. He says, forget what is behind me. So if you're taking notes, if you have your apps, or maybe you have a notebook on you, write this down for the first point. Forget what's behind me. And we get this from verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. It says, one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And that's where it starts. That's how we start. On what's ahead of us, you forget what's behind. Now, hold up. Doesn't God say time and time again in the Bible, remember, remember, remember? Is it? Isn't the past meaningful? Like, don't the memories of the past create ministries for the future? Yes, absolutely. But I want to I wanna say it like this. Treat the past like you would high school. Right? Nobody wants to stay stuck in high school forever. Right? Nobody wants to live in algebra forever or live in your chemistry class forever. No, we want to forget that and we want to move on with life. But we can take what we learned in high school. We could take what we learned in algebra and chemistry and move on with life and apply those things we learned where it is going to be helpful and meaningful. And so when Paul says, forget what's behind you, he's not saying obliterate the memories of the past. My friend recently, this past week, we were having lunch, and he said to me something that kind of caught me off guard. He said, 
hey, I noticed that you and Monica don't fight anymore. Like, you guys don't fight all that much. I said, no, we fight. <laughs> we fight. I said, but I think after 12 years of being married, married, I think we've learned to fight well. Like, we're getting better at fighting. And, and we're getting quicker to the point where we can ask, okay, so how do we move forward? Instead of dwelling on the mistake or the conflict that, that got us there, we're moving quicker to the point where we say, okay, so what's our takeaway? That's the language we use. What, what's my takeaway from this? What's your takeaway so that we don't do this again? How do we move forward from here? We are not dwelling on what happened. And so when Paul says, forget what is behind us, I don't think he's saying bury the past. He's just saying refuse to live in it. Don't be stuck in that. If it consumes us or distracts us and stunts us from forward movement, then forget it. Forget it. And so the reality is when you think about your past, I realize you might have a painful past. Maybe you've had a botched business. Maybe you've had a failed friendship. Maybe you've had a backstabbing betrayal. Maybe you've, had, maybe you've had things just go absolutely miserably wrong. Lots of regrets in the past. And we know, some of us know all too well that the painful past can be paralyzing. If we just stay in it and we sulk in it. But also, we have to acknowledge that our past may not be painful. Right? For Paul, what was his past like? Like Paul had a positive past. He had a very positive past in many ways. And in this chapter, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to take you back to verse 4. He talks about how positive it was. In fact, he's addressing these Judaizers, these religious people who were taking great pride and boasting in their Jewish heritage and saying that spirituality comes from holding to Jewish traditions and Jewish law. Here's what he says in Philippians 3, verse 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he saying? He says, some of you guys aren't even Jewish. You want to talk about being Jewish? I am Jewish to the core, born of two Hebrew parents. I speak Hebrew. I speak Aramaic. I am Jewish by blood. It's at the very core of who I am. And then he goes on. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. So not just a Jew, a teacher to the Jews. And then he goes on, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So not just a teacher to the Jews. I'm one of the most zealous, most passionate teachers of the Jews. I persecute. I kill those who don't follow the Jewish law. That's his past life. And then he goes on, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. I don't just talk the talk. I've walked the walk. He says, you want to boast? Look at my rap sheet. He's like, that's worth boasting about. But Paul... Is making this point that his past status and his past standing isn't going to stumble him from now moving forward in his new life with Christ. He, was gonna, he wasn't going to be stuck in the glory of the past because he knows the fullness of glory in Christ is ahead of him. And a lot of times I think when we get stuck in the past, it's because we're finding our worth and our identity in what happened in the past. Whether you had a painful past or a positive past, we're finding our worth in that. 
And if our new identity and our worth is in Christ, then let us move forward and let's forget what is behind. Let's forget what is behind. It's like driving. To forget what is behind me is like driving. None of us, I hope none of us, drive like this, right? Nobody drives like this. You don't focus on what's behind you. You drive like this. You focus on what's ahead. What's my goal? Where am I trying to get to? But it's not bad to have a rearview mirror. And every once in a while, glance to see where you've come from, what God has done in your life, what is behind you, but our focus is on what's ahead. So we begin there. We, we, we forget what's behind me. Secondly, in this passage, we strain through what surrounds me. So write this down. This is number two. This is the second way we focus on the prize, strain through what surrounds me. And so I'll take you back to verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And I love that word straining. You might want to circle or highlight that word because that word that Paul uses is this word that literally means to stretch forth. It's this, this picture of a runner in a race. That's the analogy he's using that stretches forth and lunges forward to get ahead of the competition, to cross over the finish line. It's this intense motion of moving forward. And I love that he uses that because the reality is forward motion in life is difficult. It's difficult. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes discipline because life is difficult. I don't think I have to convince anybody of that. You remember what God said to Adam and Eve when sin first entered the world? Genesis 3, if you forgot, let me show you what God said life is going to be like because of sin. In Genesis 3, starting in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Now, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you, especially you moms, have had pain in your pregnancy, right? I mean, there's a list of common complications that, that moms often have. Preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, extreme nausea, severe nausea, right? And the list can go on and on. It's not easy. And then we know that the difficulty doesn't just stop when the child comes forth. We know there's a lot of pain in the, preg the delivery, but we know that there could be pain after that. I know many moms who have gone through postpartum depression, sometimes taking weeks, months, sometimes even years to press through that. And we know that, that it doesn't stop there. It says in bringing forth your children, raising your kids, it's, tr it's hard. Sometimes there's a baby that doesn't want to sleep well at night. Sometimes there's a colicky baby. Sometimes there's defiance. Sometimes there's disobedience. Lots of times there's terrible twos and threes and terrible fours and fives. My mom will tell you I put her through terrible 22. 22 years of her life I, I put her through all this worry and concern. I'm responsible for her enhanced prayer life, right? Raising children isn't easy. And if that weren't enough, he goes on and he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
anybody have difficulty in marriage? Anybody have a really hard marriage? Husbands, do not raise your hands, okay? That, that, that's going to make it more difficult. But the truth is there's desires that are contrary to your spouse. Different dreams, different direction, different desires, different thoughts on how to raise kids, different thoughts on how to spend your money. Different thoughts on how to remodel the kitchen. I was talking to a friend who knows some divorce lawyers. He says one of the major reasons for divorce, in the South Bay Area at least, is remodeling the home. That causes separation. That's a real thing. We have differences. And how many of us have experienced a spouse who can be overbearing or abusive? Marriage can be messy and sin can be the one to blame for that. My marriage has been messy, and it's because of sin. In my wife, not me, in my wife. Just kidding. <laughs> no, it, it's in all of us. And then he goes on, if that weren't enough, he goes on in 17, to the man he said, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat Bread. In other words, he's saying work is going to be toilsome. It's going to be difficult. And that wasn't supposed to be the case, but sin has made it hard. How many of you guys find work or your career difficult? How many of you dread long hours? How many of you dread stressful deadlines? How many of you guys dread difficult employees or harsh employers? How many of you guys hate failed business deals? How many of you guys have anxiety or insecurity, loss of sleep because of your job? Life is difficult because of sin. And if all this weren't hard enough, raising kids, being married, working, he says this, till you return to the ground, it's going to be like this, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So on top of all that difficulty, we daily face the threat of returning back to the ground. Death is now a thing. Any of us in here ever face the threat of death? Any of us face the threat of disease? Anyone here ever lived through a pandemic in your lifetime? Anybody know someone with cancer? Heart problems, high cholesterol, diabetes, Alzheimer's, old age? All of us face the same threat. And so all of us, all of this to say, life is difficult. Life is difficult. And because life can be so difficult, walking away from Jesus becomes so easy. It becomes so easy. I was reading a statistic, Barna Research Group put out this statistic, and it shows, well, I think we all know that the number and percentage of practicing Christians, people who walk with Jesus, is plummeting, plummeting for the past 20 years, 20 years ago in the year 2000. One out of two about, just one out of two people profess to be practicing Christians. They said, I follow Jesus and I walk with him. 20 years later in 2020, only one out of four now profess to walk with Jesus. One out of four. And it doesn't show signs of us having a resurgence. That's the trend. Life is getting so difficult Walking away from Jesus has become easier and easier. What's going on? 
I don't think it's because the Bible is making less sense. I think the spiritual battle is getting more intense. I don't think God is changing. I don't think his character or his standards are changing. I think the world around us is changing. The world is getting worldlier. Influencers are getting more influential. Right and wrong is becoming more subjective. Sin is becoming more acceptable. And so we see the current of our culture moving in a way that is opposite of the standards of Jesus. The ways of the world are moving in an opposite direction than the way in which we should go. And I promise you, church, I promise you this, if you do nothing about your faith and you do nothing about fixing your focus, you will drift with the current of the culture. You will go in the ways of the waves. Nobody, nobody floats into fellowship with Jesus. Right? Nobody just drifts into righteousness. And in a race, nobody accidentally wins the prize. Nobody. Life is difficult, and so what do we do? We, we strain, Christian. We stretch through what surrounds us, the difficulty in this lifetime, and we press on toward the prize. We press on toward the goal. We look for what lies ahead. So we forget what's behind me. We strain through what surrounds me. And number three, we focus on the prize that awaits me. Would you write that down? That's number three from this passage. We focus on the prize that awaits me. So let me read you verse 14. And verse 14 says this. It says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. And so we come full circle. That principle we opened up with. That's true in driving and biking and snowboarding and balling. It's true in baseball and golf and ping pong. Like there's so many applications to this. It is true in running the race. We're to fix our focus on the goal. And where we fix our focus, whatever goal that is, that's where we will go. That's the direction which we will go. We'll fix your eyes on what's ahead, and we'll get there. And if heaven is your goal, if heaven is your goal, then heaven is where we should fix our eyes. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this, talking about our, our afflictions, our suffering. He says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, and, and we know it's not light, but he's making a comparison. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning it's temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So what's Paul saying here? He says, guys, listen, don't focus on the things that are temporary, the things of this earth. Focus on that which is eternal. I know you guys know this. I know that you know this in, the heart of, in your heart of hearts, that it is not worth investing in the things that don't last, that investing in the temporary things is a poor investment. You know that. I'll prove to you you know that. Show of hands, participate with me, even at home. How many of you guys have a refrigerator in your kitchen? 
How many of you guys have a refrigerator? Amen. Almost all of us who have a home, we have a refrigerator. Now, how many of us show of hands, instead of a refrigerator, you don't have a refrigerator, but instead you keep a, an ice chest, an igloo, a cooler in your kitchen to keep your food cold? Anybody? Why? I mean, an igloo, an ice chest is a lot cheaper and more affordable than a refrigerator. Why don't you keep an ice chest? Because you know an ice chest is temporary. The ice and the chill that it provides is temporary. And so you'll put more money into something that's going to be longer lasting. How many of you guys, show of hands, have light bulbs in your ceiling at home? How many of you guys have light bulbs? You have light, right? How many of you, instead of light bulbs, you, you have no light bulbs, but you just set up candles all throughout your house? Anybody? No, why? Because though candles are a lot cheaper than your electricity bill, you know that candles are temporary. They go out a lot quicker than the lights in your house. And so you'll pay more money and you'll make the investment in that which is longer lasting. Is there anything temporary in this world that is more important, more valuable, more significant than that which is eternal? I challenge you to give me one thing, name one thing that is temporary on this earth that is more important than that which lasts forever, eternity in heaven. There is no thing. And so Paul says, my life, I do one thing. He says, I do one thing in verse 13. I forget what's behind. I strain through what surrounds me. And I press on toward the prize before me. Hold on, Paul. Isn't that three things? He just said three things. No, there's one thing. Because what's he saying? Hey, Paul does a lot of things. He travels, he sleeps, he eats, he rides, he makes tents. But he's saying, look, the sum of my life Everything I do boils down to this one thing that is most important. There is nothing more important than this one thing. It is more important than my failures and my fortunes. More important than my sufferings and more than my successes. More than my tragedies and more than my triumphs. There's nothing more important than this one thing. And that is heaven for eternity. And so he lives with laser focus on the prize that awaits him. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean? That sounds good. That's a good church thing to say. But for the rest of this message, I want to talk about how do you practically live that out in the day-to-day? -day? What does it mean to fix your focus on heaven, on eternity? Well, I want to suggest to you that fixing your eyes on heaven is not something that you focus on. It's someone. It's someone. See, for Paul, he says this in, in the book of Philippians. He says, for me, to live is Christ. To die is to gain. Gain what? Christ. My whole life is about Jesus. And when I'm done with this lifetime and I go to the life to come, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is my reward. Jesus is my prize. It is always all about Jesus. We go back to verse 8 in, in the book of Philippians. Remember when he talked about all the, the status and standing that he had, all that positive stuff in the past? 
Here's what he says about it compared to knowing Jesus. In verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything a loss. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word, rubbish, that's a nice English translation for dung. Like the word he uses literally is is poop to me. All that shiny stuff, it is poop compared to the surpassing glory of Jesus, my Lord. So Paul fixes his eyes on heaven. And to fix your eyes on heaven is to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what heaven is. That's his prize. What does Paul prize? He doesn't prize possessions. He doesn't prize prestige. He doesn't prize popularity. He doesn't prize prosperity. What's his prize? His prize is the Prince of Peace. It's Jesus. And the essence of heaven is Jesus. Heaven is in heaven if Jesus weren't there. And to have Jesus in our everyday life, to have him dwell and abide in our hearts, is Jesus bringing heaven to earth. And when I'm done with my life here on earth, I go to heaven because that's where Jesus is. Jesus is the essence of heaven. And so, friends, if you want to know the purpose of your, what is the purpose of your life, I challenge you to ask, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Look to Jesus in everything. If you want to know the value of your victories, then ask, Where can Jesus be seen in this victory? If you want to know whatever your career or your calling should be, I challenge you to ask, where can Jesus most be seen in my life? What what career path is going to help me know Jesus more and go in that way? You're found in the valley of, of darkness and you're caught in depression then I pray that you would pray, God, help me to see Jesus in this darkness. Help his voice to rise above all other voices. Show me that Jesus is the Savior from my sorrows. If you want to know the significance of your suffering, then I challenge you to ask, how is Jesus being revealed in this suffering? Paul talks about his sufferings, and he goes to verse 10 in chapter 3. We go back to Chapter 3, verse 10, and regarding his sufferings, because his past was positive, but it was also painful. And he says this in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings. One translation says that I would fellowship with him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, if my suffering... It's helping me to identify with Christ who suffered for me and helps me to know him more because of his suffering for me. And I know his power through his resurrection, through this suffering, then there is significance in my suffering. If I can see Jesus more in the suffering, then it is significant. And I will welcome and embrace that suffering for it's better for me. If he could see Jesus more clearly, then that's what it's all about. In everything, we can find Jesus. And when you look for Jesus in every day, in every situation, when you look for him and you find him, fix your eyes on him. 
Fix your eyes on him. And in that way, you're fixing your eyes on heaven. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, fix your thoughts on things above, not on things below. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Who's right? Are they contradicting each other? No, they're not. They're saying the same thing. And it's this principle that's going to help us get through the uncertainties and the difficulties of life when we fix our eyes on the prize. Make it our goal, and that's the direction in which we will go. So we forget what's behind me. We strain through what surrounds me. And we focus on the prize that awaits me. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to close. I want to close by sharing a term with you, and some of you guys know it maybe a little bit too well. It's called chapter 11. And chapter 11 is often associated with bankruptcy. When a person comes to a place where they have a a financial burden that's too heavy to bear, when there's a debt they can't pay off, they file chapter 11. It's this place where you come to and you realize, I need some reorganization in my life. I need to reorient my life. I need some help. Chapter 11, that's what it's about. Nobody looks forward to getting to chapter 11. And maybe in your life, your life is described by chapter 11. Maybe you're financially bankrupt. You've hit rock bottom. Or maybe chapter 11 figuratively describes your life. Because maybe you have all the money you need, but you're empty. You're bankrupt. Emotionally bankrupt. Mentally bankrupt. Maybe physically or relationally bankrupt, you just feel empty and depleted. And maybe chapter 11 describes your life today, this season. Or maybe chapter 11 will describe your life next season. Reality is nobody, nobody hopes to get to chapter 11. Can I show you what Paul's chapter 11 looked like? Let me show you chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When we think about people who suffered, we think about Job. Have you ever thought about what Paul suffered? Here's his chapter 11. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the, the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That's what Jesus went through. He went through it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. The verses go on. He has more to this list. I'm going to stop it right there. But how many of us can identify with his chapter 11? You feel like you're going through it all and it's just not stopping. You feel burdened. You feel empty. You feel disoriented. You're suffering. And I've read this chapter before and I've asked many times, why does Paul keep walking with Jesus? Like, why don't you curse him already? Why don't you turn from him already? How can anybody possibly press through this? And then I realized the secret to getting through chapter 11. What's the key to getting through chapter 11? You look ahead to chapter 12. 
Because if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I got a vision, a glimpse of heaven. And he said, he has a word for it. He calls it paradise. He said, I got to see paradise. In other words, I got to see my Lord and the place in which he dwells. I got to see him sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. I got to see and hear inexpressible things. And he writes in chapter 12, I can't even tell you the details of all I saw because I've come off as being conceited. It sounded like I'd be boasting if I were to tell you about it. And so in other words, Paul's saying, I saw the prize that awaits me. So why in the world would you go through chapter 11? Because chapter 12 is what is coming. And so I will press through. I'll get back up and I'll keep on pressing on toward the prize. I want to challenge you, church, if you are in chapter 11, or one day when your chapter 11 comes, that's not the end of your story. Do not close the books if you are in Christ, because chapter 12 is coming. So you forget what's behind, you strengthen what surrounds, and you move forward toward the prize. Look ahead, fix your focus, fix your eyes on heaven, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for your glorious truth. God, this is what we need. Because life is difficult. It's more difficult now for some than others, but we know that that day may come when we find ourselves feeling empty and depleted just down and out, and I pray that in those moments we would fix our focus, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. And God, even when things are good, even when we're living in a positive season, that with all the things that shine on this earth, that we would see that it's temporary, that it doesn't last. And I pray that we would fix our eyes on eternal glory. God, right now I pray as we worship you that you would help us turn our eyes upon Jesus. That we would look full into his wonderful face. I pray that all the things of this world, all the things that shine, all the things that, that glitter, that it would all grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. It's in Jesus' name that we praise you now. Amen.